Ah, uh, can you help me thank our worship team for leading us so well this morning? It is going to be a fun, fun week together. Hey, I absolutely love getting the chance to be part of camps like Mount Hermon and love seeing what God does over the course of a week and the way that friendships form and the way that families are challenged and uh, deepened and grow in relationship with each other and with Jesus. So I just want you to know it's an honor to be with you this week. And um, in, in between sessions, if I can be of any service to you or any help or pray with any of you, I would count that a joy as well. Well, a few days before we uh, headed up here to Mount Hermon, I had the chance to spend four days on the backpacking trail with my boys. Here's a, here's a picture, picture of us as we were wrapping up those four days. And I absolutely love getting out on the backpacking trail. Like I mentioned, my wife and I met uh, as backpacking guides for Young Life. I became a follower of Jesus on a backpacking trail right after my senior year of high school. And God's done some of his greatest work in my life uh, out in the wilderness. And one of the things I was reminded of this week as I took my boys up in the eastern Sierras with a few other dads and sons from our church is that God often uses those moments to get us out of our world and out of our bubble and out of our routine to give us some perspective, to help us see things a little bit differently. And getting up on the top of a peak, what you notice is that there's not a lot that's growing up on top of the peak. Actually, most of the growth happens in the valley down below, but it's those peaks that give you perspective. They remind us where we've come from, and they also remind us where we're going. And I was reminded this last week in the, on the trail that oftentimes a, a change of place plus a change of pace equals a change in perspective. And I'm praying that into your life this week, that this week would be a, a sort of a mountaintop, a peak type of experience where you'd get a different vision of maybe some of the things that have been going on in your life and ways that God's been working. And, and then you'll be launched forward to see what God has planned for you as you walk into the future with him. You know, um, I love planning our, our meals for our backpacking trips, and which is sort of ironic because I don't love cooking in general, but I love cooking out on the trail. And one of the things I love about cooking out on the trail is that you have the chance for, for surprise and delight, where you carry something a little bit extra, and when it's mealtime, you bust it out, and everybody's like, oh. And so I made these cheesy mashed potatoes this last week, and I put real bacon in them and my boys lost their mind. It was, it was amazing. And, and I don't love, like, like I said, cooking at home, but, but I do love those moments of surprise and delight, which is why I really, really enjoy a good old-fashioned church basement chili cook-off. Can I get an amen? Is anyone with me? I, I love making chili. And most people who make chili, they have a, a secret ingredient that they put in their chili. Have you noticed this? Like if you go to a chili cook-off and you like somebody's chili, they'll take you aside and they'll go, you know, there's a secret ingredient in that. <laughs> Mine has a secret ingredient in it too. And since we're all friends, I'm gonna share what my secret ingredient is with you, okay? Just promise you won't tell. So here's what I put in my chili. Towards the end, and it's simmered for a little while, here's what I do. I bust out a can of Campbell's Fiesta nacho cheese and I... <laughs> pop that into the chili, 
and oh my goodness, you guys. I know you're looking at me like, that ain't right, but just try it and see what the Lord does in your life through Campbell's nacho cheese in your chili. It is the, it's the secret ingredient that makes it all happen. And here's the thing about a secret ingredient. A secret ingredient isn't something that like stands out. It's not the star of the show, but it may be the very reason that somebody tastes your chili and goes, ooh, wow, that's good. And here's the thing, here's the thing. I think as I look at the lives of people who God uses for great things, who walk in immense joy, the kind of people that experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about, most of them have a secret ingredient. They have something that's behind the scenes, not the star of the show necessarily, but it's, it's present in the lives of those who walk with Jesus. There's, a, there's a, like a fertilizer for the soul that God uses to allow people to walk Enjoy. And today what I want to do is I want to teach you about that secret ingredient that I believe you can plant in the lives of others that will allow them to thrive, that will allow them to flourish, and that very well may be the catalyst to them living the abundant life that Jesus has for them. If you have your Bible with you, would you open with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I believe there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you if you don't have one with you, but I'd love for you to have it open so that you can follow along as we sort of parachute into the story of the early church. And remember, Acts is sort of part two of Luke's account of the work of Jesus. Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts that this is the story of all that Jesus continued to do through his church. You'll remember in Acts chapter one, that Jesus commissioned the church to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth, right? And in this passage, in Acts chapter 11, we, we start to see that commissioning being fulfilled, beginning in verse 19. Are you there with me? One person is. Now, I've, I preached to cameras for almost a year, so one person is more than enough for me, all right? <laughs> Let's do this. Verse 19, whoever said yes over here, I see you, I'm with you, let's do it. Actually, let me ask again. Are you there? Yes. Right on. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Remember, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now notice, notice, it was persecution that God actually used to launch the church out. They were starting to get fairly comfortable in Jerusalem. They liked the way that things were going, but remember Stephen was martyred and this text says that God used his martyrdom to start to launch his church. So they went and they started to preach the good news of the gospel in Antioch. Now, I just want you to hold on to this today. Just because there's pain doesn't mean God isn't present. And just because there's pain, it doesn't mean that God's not in on the plan. 
He's using this divinely, sovereignly to move his plan forward. Now, just a quick word on Antioch. Antioch was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire at the time. It was founded in in roughly 300 BC by one of the generals of Alexander the Great's army. And it became known as one of the most beautiful cities in the entire empire. In fact, Josephus, the great historian, called it the third city in the empire after Rome and Alexandria. I mean, if you would have walked down the streets, there were colonnades and gardens, and it was just an absolutely breathtaking and beautiful place. And for that reason, it meant that it was a melting pot. There were people from all over the world that came and made their home in Antioch. And we see that the church is starting to reflect its community. But that also means that the gospel is at a crossroads, right? That that first people came and, and the apostles were preaching, they said, only to Jews. But we have Gentiles who start to look on and hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus, which means that the the church starts to get messy. I think some of the best messiest churches are those that are inter-ethnic, are connected, where different people from different backgrounds are in the same church. And this church in Antioch is trying to figure out what that looks like and how to make that work on a practical, everyday basis. And here's the thing, it was messy. They didn't know what to do about it. They didn't know what to do with the way that God was moving. And in so many ways, this passage serves as a, as a crossroads between the gospel that's preached primarily to Jews and a church that begins to include both Jews and Gentiles. We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow as we look at Acts 15. Now, we've walked through times of transition over the last year, collectively, together, and we know that seasons like this are not easy. Can I get an amen? They present unique challenges in our day and time, just like they did back then. The Gentiles are starting to believe in Jesus. What's the church going to do? How Jewish do they need to be in order to follow the way of Jesus? And so this church in Antioch sent in for reinforcements, and you see them in verse 22. Here's what it says. Here's what it says. The report of this, and this is this church that's beginning to include both Jews and Gentiles, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent whom? Barnabas to Antioch. Now, enter Barnabas onto the scene. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you may remember that this isn't the first time that we've heard about this man named Barnabas. In fact, in Acts chapter four, listen to what Dr. Luke recorded for us about Barnabas's entry into the story. It says this, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, what, say it with me? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's the interesting thing about Barnabas. He wasn't always named Barnabas. When he first enters the story, he's named what? Joseph, right? And and he's so encouraging. 
He sows these seeds of encouragement into the lives of the people in this community to the extent that they have a meeting at some point and decide, listen, we know this guy's name is Joseph, but that just doesn't fit to the extent that we want it to. You know what we should call him? Let's call him Barnabas because he's so encouraging to everybody around him. And, And the people in the community looked at each other and went, that fits, that fits. He's the first to sell a field so that people can have enough, so that there's enough to go around. This early church that was known for generosity was catalyzed by Barnabas selling a field and saying, if you need, I'll give. But it didn't end there. See, Barnabas' story continued and we read about the way that God used Barnabas in Acts chapter nine. Listen to verse 26 through 27. It says, and when they'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. This is talking about Paul and his conversion. And they were all afraid of him. They're afraid of Paul for they did not believe that he was a disciple, but, and say it with me, Mount Hermon, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, first to sell a field, Barnabas is the guy that puts his arm around the apostle Paul and vouches for him in the midst of the other apostles. No, this is genuine. He really did come to faith in Jesus. I mean, think about these really important moments in the life of the church. What if the apostle Paul had never been accepted by the disciples? I mean, how different would the story of the early church be? And Barnabas makes these sort of cameos in these transition moments that help set their trajectory for the life of the early church. And he does so by being an encouragement. Think about the importance of that. Um, When William Barclay, the great commentator, wrote about Barnabas, he called him the man with the biggest heart in the church. I'd argue that Barnabas is the secret ingredient in the life of the church. Often hidden, it doesn't stand out or draw attention to himself. He's, he's not the star of the show, but he might be the very reason that the early church thrived and did what we read about it doing. Listen to what he does when he comes. Verse 23 of chapter 11, it says, when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. And he exhorted. If you have the NIV with you, uh, it says he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted them all. He encouraged them. See, when Barnabas shows up, what does he do? He lives up to his name. And don't you love this? The early church is in this moment of challenge and difficulty. And what does the church of Jerusalem do? They don't send a strategist. They don't send a a teacher. They don't send somebody who can go and who can fix it all. What do they do? They send encouragement. They send Barnabas to say, come on, you guys, you can keep 
doing this. And what we're going to see through this text is that a word of encouragement can be a catalyst to thriving, or you might want to write it down so you can remember it. Write it down like this. Spoken words can shape human worlds. Spoken words can shape human worlds. And I love this, this word, encouragement, or I'm reading out of the ESV, it's the word exhort. But in the Greek, it's this compound word, two words put together, it's, it's parakaleo. Will you say that with me? Parakaleo. And here's what those two words mean. The two words, the first word, para, which means from, from close beside, or right near, and kaleo, which means to call. And you put those two words to call somebody from close beside, and that's what this word encouragement means. Which means it's impossible to be an encourager if you only tell people what they want to hear. Because you're calling them to something more. You're calling them to something beyond. And it also means that it's impossible to be an encourager if you're not willing to walk close beside. You don't encourage from a, the distance. You encourage in close proximity, in relationship. And so there has to be this sort of spinal fortitude to say there's something better and, and an intimacy to say, I will walk with you towards it. You're not on your own. What a beautiful word. What a beautiful word. But here's my question. Does encouragement really make that big of a difference? Do spoken words really have the ability to shape human worlds? I mean, listen to the way that James talked about this very thing in James chapter three, and this is from the message paraphrase. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson captured this. Here's what he, how he translated this. He said, a bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse. A small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets the course in the face of the strongest winds. A word out of your mouth, your mouth, may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything, or it can destroy it. Let that sit on you for just a moment. A word out of your mouth can accomplish almost anything, or it can destroy almost anything. I mean, what James is saying is that words, spoken words, have the ability to shape human worlds like seeds. Words get planted in our head, in our heart, and they eventually bear fruit. Those words, they can make us either doubt or they can cause us to believe. They can cause us to flounder or they can cause us to flourish. They can cause us to fail or they can cause us to fly. And making the same point about the power of words, ardent atheist John Paul Sartre put it like this. He said, words are loaded pistols. Words are loaded pistols. I mean, how many of you ever heard the phrase, maybe on the playground when you were growing up, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never, words can never hurt me. Now, just by a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever been hurt by a word? 
Yeah, me too. Someone lied to us along the way, didn't they? I mean, somebody told us that that was true, that words can never hurt me. And yet I believe that what started saying is true. Words can be like loaded pistols. They can have the ability to take us down. I can remember as a high school pastor, I was leading a small group of young boys, young men. And one of the high schoolers in that group, his name was Tom. He had done really poorly on a test. And his dad responded by saying, I didn't expect too much more. You've never been the brightest kid. And I, can, I just vividly remember sitting in this circle and Tom says to the entire group, he said, those words are seared on my heart. And I thought, wow, the, the weightiness of words. I think sometimes, friends, I think that sometimes we diminish the power that our words actually have in the lives of others. And did you know, this is really important for parents too, to think through in the way that we talk to our kids, but did you know, did you know that your brain is actually wired to remember harsh words? That two-thirds of the neurons in your brain are out looking for and detecting negative experiences and harsh words. And it turns out that they store, your brain stores those harsh words into its long-term memory almost immediately. By way of contrast, if somebody speaks an encouraging word to you, you need to hold it in your mind for what studies show roughly 12 seconds for it to start to sink into the long-term. What researchers have found is that our brains are like Teflon for positive experiences and like Velcro for negative ones. Which is why encouragement is so important. And would you agree that we live in a cultural moment of outrage and negativity? In fact, one study showed that nearly 90% of the news that you see on most news media outlets, 90% of it is negative. 90% of it is negative. You listen to, I swipe through social media, you listen to podcasts, like what's, what's normal is negativity. What's not so new and what's not so normal is being an encourager. And that's what I want to invite you and push you into today. So here's the question. What does it really look like to be someone who encourages? And I love the way that the scriptures um, don't just tell us to do something. They, they tell us a story and they show us what it looked like. And I think Barnabas actually gives us sort of the anatomy of an encourager. And listen to the way that this passage unpacks his work. Verse 22, look back at that with me. It says, and the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And it's interesting that the story is told from the perspective of the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, but, but I'm thinking of it from the perspective of Barnabas because <laughs> Barnabas has to choose to go, right? Barnabas has to choose to say, I'll make that journey from Jerusalem up to Antioch and I will go and bring a word to that church and I will encourage them. Barnabas has to decide, I'm willing to step into a tenuous, ambiguous, awkward situation in order to bring a word of hope. And friends, this is what encouragers do. They enter tension. 
They're willing to say, I'll go, I'll show up. Because here's the truth of the matter. Encouragement is most needed in places we typically try to avoid. Have you ever thought about that? Let me, let me put it like this. Um, if there's a situation you'd rather avoid, there's probably a person longing for encouragement. If there's a situation you'd rather avoid, there's probably a person longing for encouragement. See, people need encouragement when they are dis, anybody? Couraged, right? People need encouragement when they're discouraged, when they're deconstructing, when they're doubting. And those conversations can be awkward and those conversations can be difficult and they can be uncomfortable and it's easy to make small talk and it's easy to talk about the weather and it's harder to bring a word that actually encourages a hurting soul. But I want you to hear, please, please don't miss this. God uses people who are willing to step into the fray and step into the tension to bring a word of encouragement. He uses them to change the direction of the lives of those we love. There's a friend of mine, his name's Jonathan Duncan and um, he has cerebral palsy and we were talking about this passage together and I just thought what he said was so true and so poignant. Here's what he said. He said, to be an encourager, you need to know your way around sadness. And this is a man who's walked through challenge and difficulty for his whole entire life, almost drowned in a pool as a one-year-old kid. And, and here's what he meant by that. Here's what he meant by that. If you're going to say to God, God, I wanna be an encourager, you can't be turned off by the pain of life. You can't shrink back when things get really, really challenging and really, really difficult. You have to be willing to enter the pain and the ambiguity and the doubts with a word or an arm around somebody. You gotta be willing to enter the tension. So if there is a situation that you're walking through or around or right beside of right now that's challenging and difficult, my guess is there's a person who's longing for encouragement. Would you be that Barnabas type and step in? Here's the second thing he did. Verse 23. It says, and when he came and he, will you just say this with me, Mount Hermon? And he saw the grace of God, he was glad. I love this phrase. Because when he went, he could have seen, this is chaotic. He could have seen, this is an absolute mess. He could have seen an insurmountable mountain. How in the world are we going to create a community out of these two different people groups? What's that gonna look like? How would that even work? This is a total tragic mess. But that's not what Barnabas sees. When Barnabas shows up, what does he see? He sees the grace of God that's on display. And that's what encouragers do. They, they enter the tension and they excavate grace. I, I love that word excavate because it, it has this sort of idea of digging around to try to find it. God, how are you on the move? God, how are you working? God, God, where are you stirring in this that maybe I don't see and maybe others don't see? And then gently and delicately unearths it and brings it into the open like an archaeologist looking around and digging in the dirt. See, encouragers, they have this ability 
to help others have aha moments. Do you know what I mean by that? Like for others to say, to help others see, God is here. God is at work. God is healing. God is restoring. And it may not be happening overnight and it may not be happening at the pace that you want it to, but God is working and God is on the move. See, encouragers point out ways that God is moving and stirring that others may have missed. How many of you have somebody like that in your life? Will you just raise your hand? They have the ability to see the way that God is at work. Yeah, me too. Um, One of my encouragers throughout my life has been, uh, was my mom. She passed away in 2013, but she had this unique ability to excavate grace to speak a word of encouragement. See, here's the thing about my mom. She knew my flaws um, as a high schooler and college student. She knew my flaws better than anyone. And yet, she constantly and continually pointed me back to God's grace in my life. I, I want to encourage the parents and grandparents in this room for you to be a person just like that who is willing to excavate grace in the lives of others. It could be the secret ingredient that causes somebody to thrive. Here's what he continues to do. Verse 23. It says, and he encouraged or exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So, so you see what's going on. He enters the fray, enters attention, he sees grace, and then what does he do? He calls people to remain faithful. Now, this is a common theme. If you start to read through the epistles in the New Testament, you see Paul and others calling people, challenging people in the midst of difficulty, remain faithful. Because it's not always easy to be faithful. Can I get an amen? I love the way that Paul did it at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So he calls this church and says, come on, you guys, keep going. God is on the move. Because we all get to points in our life where we feel like giving up, don't we? Where we feel like sort of throwing in the towel, where we lose sight of the greater good, where we don't feel like we have the strength to go on or it's not even really worth it. And it's at that point that we need somebody to walk beside us and inspire faithfulness. That's what Barnabas does. That's what encouragers do. Now, just to be clear, you can't be faithful for anyone. But you can encourage people to be faithful to God, to others. I mean, it might be a word where you just speak a word over somebody's life. God has given you everything you need for godliness. That's right out of the scriptures. He's given you everything you need. It might be reminding somebody God loves you. He's for you. He sees you. It might be reminding somebody if you make this decision, If you choose to have the affair, if you choose to go down this road, encourages are people who point out, here's what you lose if you make this decision. 
Here's what's going to happen. And it's inspiring people, calling people to remain and to be faithful. See, most people, I think I've, I've, I've heard of, certainly have heard of Jackie Robinson, the great baseball player and athlete who broke the color, color barrier in Major League Baseball. But here's what most people don't know. If you were to go and ask Jackie, what? What was the secret ingredient behind it all? Here's what he would have told you. Here's what he told people in interviews. The secret ingredient in it all was his wife, whose name was Rachel Robinson. She was the one supporting Jackie. She was the one calling him to keep going when it was painful, when it was dark, when he got death threats and hate mail. And it was Jackie Robinson who once wrote about his wife and he said this, he said, thinking about Ray always makes me want to remind girls and women how important they are in making the world go round. (laughs) I love that. Here's what he said. She was inspiring faithfulness. The secret ingredient behind the scenes that allowed him to flourish and thrive. So there's one more thing. Verse 25. It says, and so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So I love that the church sends Barnabas. And then after a while, Barnabas goes, you know what? You know what this church needs? Not just me. This church actually needs Paul. So I'm gonna go get him and I'm gonna bring him down, and I'm gonna allow him to teach, and I'm gonna allow him to pour into this group of people. And here's what encouragers recognize. Encouragers recognize they don't have to be the ones up front. They don't have to be the ones that get the notoriety. They don't have to be the ones who do all the work. Encouragers know they don't have to wear a cape, but that they are the ones who behind the scenes are resourcing others for growth. And so in a really practical way, let me give you just a few ideas of what that looks like and what that means. Encouragers are are those who call on other people to take steps of obedience. Encouragers point out to others, if there is a step of obedience you're resisting, there is a blessing you're forfeiting. They tell other people, come on, following Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. There is a abundance waiting for you. And they call others alongside of them to walk towards him. But second, here's what they do. They speak honestly and lovingly about areas of potential growth. And they point people in the right direction. An encourager in resourcing others for growth might say to somebody, you know what? I think it would be good for you to reach out to a counselor or a spiritual director. Or I think it would be healthy for you to share that struggle with your life group, with your wife, with your small group, whatever it looks like. They are encouraging others to take steps of growth. And finally, here's what encouragers do. They, they set the pace for others. I love the way that Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I was... Um, out on a a trail run near our house just a few weeks ago. And I was running along with my um, yellow lab, Louie, and we were just out having a great time. And there was this runner that ran past me on the trail and 
he just looked like a gazelle. You know what I mean? Sort of like me, but, but different, different. And I mean, he tore past me. His pace was unbelievable. And I say to Louie, I'm like, come on, Lou, let's go. And I'm like in a race with this guy, right? He has no idea, but we were racing, okay? And I am huffing and puffing, trying my best to keep up. And he won the race that he didn't know that he was in. But when I got back to my car and I looked at my watch, it was tracking my run. What I saw was that the mile that I was chasing that guy was the fastest mile I ran throughout the whole time. And I thought, that's what it looks like to, to model for someone. It doesn't mean that they're exactly right in step, but you set a pace that you invite others to follow. You call alongside, follow me as I follow Christ. So here's the thing, Mount Hermon. What about you? What about you? Is this your DNA, the anatomy of an encourager to enter tension, to excavate grace, to inspire faithfulness, to resource others for growth? Please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Your words have the power for destruction or for life. That's right out of the scriptures, friends. They have the ability either to build up or to destroy. And the truth of the matter is, every single person in this room is being invited by Jesus to be the secret ingredient in somebody else's thriving, to be the secret ingredient in them taking off. And you know what's beautiful about that? As we step into this role for other people, God actually starts to bless us and pour into us and light us up as well. As the Proverbs say, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And you can do this this week. You can write a note to somebody. You can send somebody a text message, maybe even better. You can hear people's stories around the dinner table and when we're fighting over donuts in the courtyard. You can listen for people that are worn out, that are tired, that have come into this week on fumes. And there are those people here who have. And maybe a word from you, voice of encouragement, could be the difference between them thriving and them giving up. You have no idea how one conversation or one word of encouragement could change somebody's life. But I also want you to hear, I've been praying for you. Because I feel like when, sometimes when we hear a message like this, one of the things that the enemy of your soul wants to do is remind you of all the words that you've spoken that didn't line up with this. He, he wants to remind you, oh, you, you, you didn't do this with your kids. You haven't done this. You haven't lived this out. You are an absolute failure. How could you say those things? So just know, I've been praying against the enemy's voice of condemnation, and I've been praying that as God's people, we would be able to know the difference between the enemy's voice of condemnation, where he says, you're a failure, and you're guilty, and you'll never add up, with the Spirit's voice of conviction that wants you to hear, oh, there's a new day. There's a new day on the horizon, and by my Spirit, and by my power, you can live into this. And here's what encouragers do. And we'll close with this. Encouragers, here's what they simply do. And I love this. They echo the voice of God. 
like a Wi-Fi repeater. They just take what, what God is saying through his spirit from his throne in heaven into the lives of people who he died for and who he loves. They just echo what God's saying. And notice, notice how God himself lives out all of these things that we've talked about. He enters the mess. We call this incarnation. He doesn't just excavate grace. He brings grace. He is grace. He's a faithful God and he calls us to be his faithful followers. And he grows us by the power of his spirit. And as we close our time, I think there's some here. As I was just praying through this text and this message today, I think there's some here where you are longing for a word of encouragement, but you're not longing for it from somebody else. You actually just need it from God himself. And so I'd invite you to just put your stuff away and we're gonna close up our time, but I just wanna end our time together in prayer. I wanna give you time to be quiet to listen, because I, I believe that for some of you, you're in this place right now. It's not an accident that you're up here. Jesus wants to speak to you personally. He wants you to experience firsthand his encouragement today. And there are some who have let the words of others, words like you'll never be good enough, you'll never add up, You'll always be a failure. You'll always fall short. We've let those words define and shape our lives. Like Velcro, they've stuck to our mind. And I think today Jesus wants to bring freedom. So let's pray. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? God, for those that are in this room right now, And they're saying back to you, God, I need a word of encouragement. I need a word of hope. I need to be reminded that you redeem. God, even there's some who've carried into this place words people have spoken to them that they've allowed to shape and define their life. Father, right now I pray, would you do a work, a miraculous, mighty work to bring freedom, please? Uh, Your blood speaks a better word, a word of love, a word of hope, a word of redemption. And I pray right now that those who are in this place and they're wrestling and they're struggling and they're doubting, that you would open their hearts up to receive from you. God, let them know that you see them, that you love them, that you died for them that you've wired them, that you've knit them together in their mother's womb, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let them know, Jesus, that you have forgiven them, made them righteous, called them your own, that they can let go of their failures in the past and they can trust you and your forgiveness as they move into the future. Speak a better word. And may that word stick. May that word shape us. May that word form us. Lord, I love, I love, I love that we're told in your scriptures that this Antioch, this place of Antioch is the first place people are called Christians. And maybe it's because of the encouragement that they received from Barnabas. God, may we be known also 
as your followers, encouraging one another and receiving from you all that you want to pour into our life. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people together say, amen.